Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to take a look at the whole chapter this morning, but we're only going to cover verses 1 through 6. So let, let me read the chapter to you, and then, then we'll go over my reasoning for, for breaking it up. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves to one another, they're without understanding. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in other areas of influence. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So, there's just a ton of stuff in here, and I didn't want to lose any of it. <laughs> so, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. In the first nine chapters of uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul has established his credentials as an apostle. He's done as much as he can to encourage the Corinthian church and build them up while he's still reminding them of who he is and one of the primary things he wanted to establish is that Christ is in them and Christ is in him he's he's counting on their unity in Christ to walk through a little bit of a difficult time so in those first seven chapters he gets all this done and he begins he begins his theological teaching and then begins telling them how they should walk this through. Now, this is really important for us. We're a teaching church, and that's kind of what our reputation is, and we have a very high view of the authority of God. Not that other churches don't. A lot of other churches do, but we're a teaching and equipping church, and 
It's really important. Uh, scripture tells us that we are to teach theology and sound doctrine. And, uh, you know, that's not real popular throughout the evangelical church these days. There, there are a number of churches that embrace it, but a lot don't. And a lot of people say, I don't want all this theology. I just want Christ. I don't want all this doctrine. I just want relationship. Give me relationship. And, I mean, isn't Christ about love and so on and so forth? And that's all true. But uh, let's be honest with each other. We all have a theology, whether we believe it or not. R.C. Sproul, God rest his soul, said everybody's a theologian. Everybody has an idea they've formed, a perception they've formed about who God is and how they relate to him. So we all have a theology. The question is whether or not our theology is sound. Well, you know, we want to preach sound theology here. This is what Paul's doing with the Corinthian church. They've gotten a little astray. They've run into some problems. Uh, there's some questionable teaching coming in, and Paul wants to bring them back to the basics, wants to bring them back to sound doctrine. But look, he's not just there to teach them theology. We can understand all the theology we want. We can do all of the parsing we want of the verbs and the conjugations and so on and so forth. We can study in the original language. We can read it in the original language. If it doesn't impact our hearts, it doesn't do any good. So Paul wants to wants to educate them. He wants to give them an academic lesson. We all need that, but he also wants them to apply it when they're outside the church. So we're not just here for an academic exercise. We're here for transformation. And as we learn sound theology and sound doctrine, it should reach into our lives. It should reach into our heart. It should come flowing from us when we're out there in the community putting Christ on display. And that's what Paul wants for the Corinthian church. So in this week's text, he's going to exercise some of that apostolic authority that he's been given. But he does it very wisely, and he does it very gently. We need to pay attention to this. His primary reference is going to be, as it always is for Paul, his primary reference is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he, Paul... And those who oppose him measure up to the standard of Christ, not any other standard that might be floating around out there. Because there's a lot of comparison going on. You can see, you, you don't have to read too far in between the lines, and in particular in this passage, that they're, th these, these false teachers, these people who are creating all this problem, uh, they're comparing themselves to Paul. And oddly enough, they're coming out very favorably looking, as they see it, compared to Paul. So, Paul wants to get the Corinthians to do what Paul does and say, how do I, Paul, measure up to Christ? How do you measure up to Christ? How do these, these teachers measure up to Christ? So, this week's sermon is called Our Measure, as opposed to what we've seen on the website and what you might see in your bulletin. This is Our Measure, part one, because I divided up into two sections. This is actually part 14 of our ongoing series, I Am Content, in 2 Corinthians. Here's what Paul wants to show us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. That our best defense is an offense. Our best defense is an offense. Now, I, I want you to just hold on to that because when, when I came up with that pithy saying, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting because I have, I have a very specific picture in my mind when I hear those words, 
our best defense is an offense because when I'm having trouble with somebody, I want to offend them. I know you're probably different. You're probably better peacemakers than I am, uh, and God bless you for that, but hold on to the thought, our best defense is an offense. And we're going to take a close look at Paul's strategy this morning, and it comes in three elements. Paul is going to identify the enemy. Now, I think this is going to be a surprise to you. Uh, he's going to identify the enemy in verses 1 through 3. He's going to identify the weapons that he's going to use against the enemy in verse 4, and he will identify his mode of attack, his uh, tactics, in verses 5 and 6. So let's listen to Paul as he identifies the enemy in verses 1 through 3. And, and we, we should understand Paul's overall strategy before it's worth reviewing. He's encouraged and exhorted the Corinthian church, and now he's going to turn his attention to these these critics, these people that are causing so much tension in the church and kind of capitalizing on an offense that the, the church held on to, and, and Paul's trying to help them be free of that. So uh, his attention is turned towards the critics. And, you know, if we wanted to divide the book of Second Corinthians into three sections just so we can get a grip on how all this works, is chapters 1 through 7 were about what had happened. Chapter 8 and 9 is about what's happening now in the Corinthian church. And chapters 10 through 13 are about what's about to happen because Paul's planning another visit and he's kind of given them a warning in 10 through 13 saying, look out because I'm coming back. And all these things that everybody has said about me, we're going to get out on the table and take care of. So while Paul's been on a mission of reconciliation so far and encouragement, the warrior Paul, now emerges. So now we begin to see that Paul's got some teeth, and he wants to address those who have brought division into the church, and primarily what he wants to do is take care of those who have brought harm to the church. They have harmed Paul's children, his spiritual children, and Paul wants to make sure this gets taken care of in a godly fashion. So he starts out with a simple phrase. He says, I, Paul, now, this is not an arrogant Paul, but this is Paul walking in his apostolic authority. He's reminding them. He said, I, Paul, I, the one who brought you the gospel, the one who preached Jesus Christ to you, the one who has set this foundation of sound doctrine and th sound theology, it's me. You know who I am. I've been reminding you who I am for the last nine chapters. Now, now I'm saying this, I, Paul, Paul is flexing his spiritual muscle just a little bit here, reminding his readers of his office, but doing it with, with what? With meekness and gentleness. So we know it's not Paul pounding on the table going, don't you know who I am? Do you understand who you're talking to? It's Paul going, you know who I am. I'm an apostle. You've seen my apostolic calling. You've seen my apostolic gift. So listen carefully to what I have to say. And he calls himself humble when face to face. Now, I got to tell you something. As I, I read through this chapter a number of times, it's not the easiest chapter in 2 Corinthians to understand. Okay? So one of the ways that we study scripture is we should look at a passage, we get familiar with a passage, and, you know, if you're going to Apollos, you know that we're going to ask you to find 
keywords and identify the words and define the words and so on and so forth. But one of the steps is to look at it in other versions. I look at it in the King James, no easier to understand, the NASB, Holman Christian Bible, which has kind of become my default, is a little bit better, but the NIV, the NIV just unlocked the verse. So I've given you a copy in your bulletin of the New International Version. You can take a look at that, but it's primarily for you to take a look at later on. What I'd like you to do this afternoon is read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in the ESV, which is a good translation, but it's a word-for-word translation, and it gets a little awkward at times, and then read it in the NIV and compare the two, and you'll see how God uses translations to speak to us, how the Holy Spirit works through any translation we have in our hand to speak to us and work in our hearts. So when Paul calls himself humble when face-to-face, in the NIV there are quotations around the humble. And what Paul is actually saying is, look, here's what these guys are saying about me, that I'm humble when face-to-face, but bold when I'm away. The accusation is that if I'm not standing in front of you, you know, I can be really bold and say whatever I want to do, but when I come in front of you, I'm just this little guy who doesn't have any, any substance to him. So they're, they're not personal. Paul's not taking it personally. He's just addressing what is being said about him. So apparently... These are the accusations that are being leveled against Paul, and he's going to go at them directly. And he's looking forward. So we have to see this in verse 2. He's looking forward to addressing these people face to face. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, Paul is saying, these folks are going to be chastised. We're going to deal with this. I'm going to look them in the eye, and we'll talk about this. Now, we need to understand this as a lesson for how we communicate with each other today. Paul's saying, I'm not going to write. I'm not going to send a letter to them. I'm sending a letter to you. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm sending a letter of encouragement to you. When it comes to confrontation, I'm going to sit in front of them and talk to them face to face. Today he might say, I'm not going to put a posting on Facebook. I'm not going to write something to my Twitter account. I'm not going to put up a picture on Instagram and hope they get it. I'm going to sit in front of them and go, now what's the problem with me being meek? Do you think that I'm not bold? Well, let's talk about that. And, you know, it's one of the things we try to practice here with the staff at Warrington Bible Fellowship. If we're going to encourage, we'll send a letter of encouragement. We'll send a note. We'll send a text praying for you, thinking about you, love you, hope things are going well. How's your mom? How's your dad? How are things going? Okay, but if we want to confront, if we want to chastise, if we want to correct, we want to do it face to face. Paul is using godly wisdom here. And, you know, there's a practical aspect to it. He can see the body language. They can see his body language. They can look him in the eye. They can see the look on his face. They can tell when he's serious. They can tell when he's kidding around. You can't do these things when you're on the phone, when you're reading a letter, and you know how this goes. You've sent a letter to somebody, and you've said in the letter, oh, gee, I was thinking about you, and I just love you so much, and I just hope really good things for you. And they're having a bad day. Somebody just kicked their dog. 
Somebody just bumped their door in the parking lot. Now they got this big ding on their car, and they get your letter, and it says, oh, yeah, I was just thinking about you, and I just love you so much. I hope good things for you. And they're sitting there going, I can't believe they wrote this to me. So there's no chance for misinterpretation. Excuse me. There's fewer chances for misinterpretation when you're sitting face to face. There's great chance for misinterpretation when you're reading because the person who's reading is going to read it according to the filters that he has in his day right then. Paul gets this. So he says, I beg of you that I may not have to show the same boldness towards you that I'm going to show to these people who are accusing me. For though we walk in the flesh, it says in verse 3, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, here's where Paul is identifying the enemy. And this is important. What we see here in defending himself, Paul, you know, right on the surface, Paul is not going to use the tactics of the world. He's not going to do things the way people in the world do them. He does, however, intend to use the mighty weapons of God. But I I want you to watch this. Because the weapons he's going to use are not going to be used against the flesh. That's what's embedded in here. He's not going to use the weapons of God, whatever they are, we'll get to it in just a second. He's not going to use it against the flesh. Why not? Why wouldn't he just pound these people? When I confront them, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, I'm going to kick them out of the church, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, oh, will you wait until I get my hands on them. He's not going to do it to the people because the people are not the problem, it's the lies that they are telling. The enemy is not the people. The enemy is the attack on truth that's being levied by these people. The enemy is not the false teachers, the enemy is the lies that the false teachers are spreading. The lies are what are doing the harm. And we have to be careful to make this distinction. Otherwise, we can go off the rails when we're dealing with people. What weapon is Paul going to use against those lies? Well, this second element of Paul's strategy here. So he identifies the weapons. For the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Talking about a weapon with divine power, that's not my fist. So, what strongholds is he talking about? Well, you know, this offense occurred in the church, between Paul and the church, and these people came in and began building on that foundation of offense and began building on the tension. There's now a stronghold in the church, a stronghold that stands against the truth of who they are in Christ and who their brothers and sisters are. And now there's, there's this foundation of division, this foundation of offense, this foundation of anger and tension that's being built. And so that stronghold has gotten a hold of the church. And they're starting to think differently about Paul. And some people support him. Some people don't support him. There's division in the church now. The bitterness has been allowed to divide these people. And the truth is under attack. Paul's accusers are interlopers in the church. And it's time. It's time to fight back. So Paul says, let me tell you how we're going to fight back. 
I'm going I'm to get everybody that is on my side to sign a petition. And then we'll show them this petition, and they'll realize that I'm right. Well, no, he doesn't say that. Or maybe Paul says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to march on Washington and make them change this stuff. That's how we're going to fight back. If we all get together, if, if we can all stand down there in the mall and show the politicians how serious we are, then they'll change the laws and everything will be okay and there won't be any more division. Or maybe, maybe Paul thinks that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to make a sign and I'm going to carry it through town and say, they're wrong and I'm right. And, and that will get everybody on my side. That will unite everybody. What weapons is Paul going to use? Well, Paul has already identified his weapons. And he told them in 1 Corinthians 1. He's told them in the early part of 2 Corinthians, he wrote it in Romans as well. Now, these are long passages of Scripture, but bear with me because Paul is going to use the weapons he's already identified to fight his accusers. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 25. Write this down. Look at it later on. It's there in your handout, but listen to what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, the cross of Christ, the gospel has power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came, Paul says, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the only message he had. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel's the power of God. Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greeks. The weapons that Paul is going to use to combat against his accusers is the gospel. It is God's word preached in truth. 
and in spirit. Now that's pretty powerful. The weapon against the lies that the world would try to impose upon the church is the gospel. Why? Why don't we do this other stuff? Because Paul says, I'm not going to battle it in a fleshly way. I'm going to battle it in a godly way. I'm going to preach the gospel and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit. Not up to me to convince anybody of anything. It's up to me to proclaim the truth of God. And the Spirit will take care of the rest. And, you know, that, that's kind of hard because we really do want to convince people to come over to our way of thinking. I do. That's why I get up here and talk to you on Sunday. <laughs> but if I think that I have the capability to persuade you to do anything. I'm just fooling myself because the only one that can do any transformation among you and within you is who? The Holy Spirit. So that should take the pressure off us having to accomplish anything. Paul's not saying, I, I, I need to come there and get those people out of the church. I need to, to, to rip their pew out and throw it away so they don't have anywhere to sit. I need to bar the door so that they can't come in. I need to put up a, a phalanx of, of people that keep them from getting too close to the church. He said, what, what Paul says, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to preach the truth of God and we'll let God take care of this because he's a lot more powerful than I am. So the weapons he uses are the word of God, the gospel. So what are those weapons going to do? What are they going to look like? How do we know? How do we know if we have victory? Well, the weapons are going to do two things. This is Paul's plan of attack. This is his tactics. This is the third element of his strategy. They do two things. First, they have the power to defeat the outside influences on the church that are dragging it down. They have the power to bring down these strongholds. Now, we, 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 need, we need to think about the imagery that's here. Uh, Paul kind of started this thing with the stronghold idea. Uh, but in verse 5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, that's pretty strong. But in, in the vernacular of the day, uh, what Paul's readers would have read, it, th this is the, the terminology of warfare. Uh, they would see walls being broken down. They would see ramparts being raised so that the, the, the uh, city inside uh, could be plundered so that the enemies that are attacking uh, the, the church can be taken prisoner. So this is the language of violence. And this is what the gospel does. This is not what Paul's doing. It's what the gospel does. They, so the, the words, the truth, have the power to bring down strongholds, to take prisoner the lies that are being told to the church and bring truth into the church. The second thing they, that these weapons have is, is they have an internal effect as well. And this is what Paul wants to see. So we have to understand the order that Paul's advocating here. Uh, he says, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What does that mean? You know, this is where the NIV is a bit more helpful. The NIV says, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So, Paul 
Paul wants the Corinthians to struggle with the truth first. He wants the truth to have an impact on them. Then they're going to deal with the, the accusers. Now, we know this because of this phrase in here, take every thought captive. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? We have. You know, if you sat and counseled with me, uh, we've talked about take your thought captive. Now, but but I, want, I want to think about it for a second. Because a lot of people think when we're trying to take thoughts captive that we, we shouldn't have bad thoughts. Right? Should be thinking about things on Christ. We shouldn't be thinking about myself. I shouldn't be thinking about the worries I have and so on and so forth. But you, you really can't take a thought captive until it's already materialized. I mean, it's not a thought unless you think it. Right? <laughs> okay. So, what, what do I do with that? Uh, oh, Lord, stop me from thinking about that. Oh, Lord, stop me from thinking about a pink elephant. You know, the old adage. You, you try to stop thinking about a pink elephant, that's all you can think about. So, I, I can't block my mind. I, I, can't, I can't keep my flesh from rising up from time to time and having a thought that's not godly. I can't, I, I, I can't stop myself from thinking, oh, I'm in the middle of Walmart, and this is small. I could put this in my pocket, and nobody would ever notice it. I, I know, again, you've never had those thoughts, but you know, they occur to me from time to time. What do I do with that thought? You know, it, it, you know, it, it, I mean, my second thought is there's a million cameras there. I'm going to get arrested and thrown in prison for the rest of my life, but the thought's there, you know. What, what do I do with it? Well, we take the thought captive. And this is what Paul wants to do. Paul's saying, look, the, the Word of God has the capability to bring down those strongholds that are tearing your church apart. But it has to start inside. So you've got to take your thoughts captive. And I know you, you're offended because I didn't come when I said I was going to come. And I've had to write some hard letters. And, and these guys are coming and said, yeah, you know, he's just a weakling. Wait till he shows up. You'll see how small he is. He's a big man when he writes a letter. But he's really nothing when he's standing in front of you. And that's kind of been building in you. You've got to take those thoughts captive. Stop thinking about me as a weakling and, and, and the enemy. Because I'm not the enemy. The lies you're hearing are the enemy. Well, how do we take them captive? Well, we don't have any choice but to do something other with them than to keep thinking them. So we take them captive in obedience to Christ. I just want you to think about this for a second. Because the most effective way to do that is to redirect your thoughts. When that thought comes up, you know, this is a small thing. I could put it in my pocket. And I might get all the way out to my car before they shoot me. Okay? Instead of going, Lord, stop me from thinking about stealing stuff. Stop me from thinking about inappropriate things. Stop me from being angry. Lord, make me patient because I'm, I'm not patient right now. We turn around and go, but Lord, that would not honor you, so I'm going to put it down here. Thank God that I'm in a store, that I've got some money in my pocket if I need to buy something. Thank God 
that I've got a car out in the parking lot. Thank God that he's given me a family that I can go home to, that I don't have to submit to this ungodly thought that I have. And thank God that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, and he's planted the word of truth in my heart and that I know that this is the wrong thing, and thank God that he's put the Holy Spirit in me to tell me that these thoughts are inappropriate, and I'm going to redirect my thoughts and focus on Jesus Christ and focus on the work of the Spirit in my life and the transformation that's going on in me and be thankful for that. And within, within 30 seconds, 45 seconds of redirecting your focus to Jesus Christ, the thought's gone. It's been taken captive. The stronghold has been broken down and it's been imprisoned. Your protection is not the way you think. Your protection is the Holy Spirit working in you saying, think about this. Direct your thoughts to those things that are heavenly, not those things that are worldly. Direct your thoughts to Jesus Christ, not on your wants and desires. The more you linger on these ungodly thoughts, what happens? I mean, you all know what happens. The more you linger on the ungodly thoughts, the worse they get. You know, it, it, maybe it's not stealing something. Maybe it's anger. The more you think about your anger, the angrier you get. We talked about this the other week, didn't we? The more you think about what you're worrying about, the worried, more worried you get. You start thinking about Jesus Christ, start thinking about the Lord, start quoting Scripture to yourself. Start being thankful to God just because he's there with you. I mean, he's omnipresent, isn't he? He's everywhere. I've told you before, privacy's a myth. You know, you think you've got privacy? God knows everything that's going on. So you think about the presence of God. You think about the presence of the Holy Spirit. You take a captive. See, Paul wants the Corinthians to do this first. He wants them to get under the influence of the gospel. He wants them to be impacted by the truth of God's word. That's why he says, and being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When you're submitted to the truth, then we'll take care of those people that are telling the lies. Paul wants the struggle to occur in the Corinthians first, in their spirit, spirits. Now note carefully what Paul's doing here. Dangerous people have infiltrated the church. They're lying to the Corinthians. They're undermining Paul's apostolic authority. Paul wants to defend himself. And, and we'll see this as we go on, maybe even more so. He wants to protect the church. So what does he fight back with? He fights back with the gospel. He fights back with the gospel. And, and, and note, note the tactics that Paul's using. Just, just use this as a guideline as we go forward together. He doesn't want to destroy the people who oppose him. He doesn't want to hurt the people that are hurting him. He wants to destroy their arguments. He doesn't name names. You know, I, some people think, well, it's because everybody knows who he's talking about. And, Paul, Paul's not in here going, well, you know, th that guy and that guy and that guy. Paul's saying, well, you know, I'll take care of them when we get back. We'll take care of them with the gospel. The Holy Spirit will deal with them. I'm not going to put their names out there because they're not the enemy. The enemy are the lies that are rising up. He's not there. Paul's goal is not to triumph over these individuals that are causing the problem. 
And, and he's not there to understand this, to do what they do, to make accusations, to malign, to, to, uh, uh, to make Paul look bad. He's not going to do, engage in that. Those are the weapons of the flesh. He wants the Corinthians to acknowledge and absorb the truth so that they will become obedient to the gospel. Paul's not looking to strengthen his grip over the Corinthian church. He's not looking to assert himself in the Corinthian church. He's looking for the Corinthian church to strengthen its grip on the gospel. Boy, talk about redirection. Paul's not only telling them to do it, he's doing it. Once the Corinthians get in line with the gospel, Paul will then work in concert and in harmony with the Corinthians to bring the truth, not to lord over them. This isn't a fight. This isn't a power struggle in the church. Paul's strategy should be ours. Shouldn't it? I mean, it worked in that environment. It should work in this environment. We should be able to identify the enemy. It's not the person on the other side of the line from us. It's the lies that are against the truth. Against what truth? against the truth of God, against the gospel. We should identify and know our weapons. We should be familiar with our weapons. I mean, if you're going to use a gun as a weapon, what do they teach you to do first? How to take it apart and put it back together, don't they? How to clean it, how to maintain it, how to make sure it's in working order. To do that, you have to spend time with it. Same thing with the gospel, same thing with the word of God. We need to know our weapons. And we should attack not the people, but the lies that oppose the truth. What does that look like? Well, that looks like sharing the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, we know the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins if you repent and ask forgiveness and surrender yourself to his lordship. Well, you'll have eternal life. But I'll tell you something else about the gospel. What is it? It's an offense, isn't it? It's an offense. Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of what? Offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, the best defense is an offense. Defense of Jesus Christ on the cross dying for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have the power. Lord, that you have all the power we would ever need. Lord, it is yours. It is there in the presence of your spirit, there in the leading of your spirit. It is there in the power of your word and the power of the message of your word, Father. Let that be first and foremost in everything we do, in every opposition we run into. Let your word of truth rise up in us, come flowing out of us, Father, in meekness and in gentleness, Father, that those around us might be changed, might be transformed the way you are transforming us, Father, that your grace and mercy might flow freely from us as the evidence of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.